0: Welcome back folks to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, Mr. Jeff Bond. Jeff is an accomplished author, music critic, and album producer. He's written several books on sci-fi related topics, including The Music of Star Trek, The Art of Star Trek, The Kelvin Timeline, The World of Orville, and The Art and Making of Narcos. Mr. Bond is originally from Ohio and graduated from Bowling Green State University with a degree in creative writing, after which he pursued a career as a movie magazine reporter. Jeff's knowledge of film and TV music scores and their creators dates back to the 1990s when he served as senior editor for Film Score Monthly. As a freelance writer, he's written articles for The Hollywood Reporter, Geek Monthly, and Cinefantastique magazine. From 2003 to 2006, Jeff served as senior editor at CFQ, the latter-day revival of Cinefantastique. In addition, he's written hundreds of movie and television soundtrack liner note booklets as an editor for GNP Crescendo Records, Varèse Saraband Records, and La, La Land Records. In 2012, he shared an IFMCA Award nomination for Star Trek, the original series soundtrack collection, and won the shared 2012 award for Star Trek, the motion picture, expanded soundtrack in the category of Best Archival Release of an Existing Score for his work as producer and Liner Notes author. Notably for us, Jeff, along with his colleague, Neil Bulk, was album producer on the beautiful Lost in Space 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection, released in 2015. In addition, he recently co-produced, again with Neil Bulk, A four-disc Land of the Giants 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection released in late 2018. His latest project that he teased for us last time is finally about to be released. The definitive coffee table book more than two and a half years in the making, The Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen. This deluxe 600 plus page limited edition hardback is the first and only book of its kind taking readers on a visual journey through the mind and career of legendary producer Erwin Allen. When we got together to record, Jeff was extremely generous with his time. So generous, in fact, I've decided to split our conversation into two special Calling Alpha Control interviews. When we spoke with Jeff almost a year ago, we focused on the music for the first season of Lost in Space. So this time, we concentrated on the second season music for the series. I'll save that conversation for a future episode, so stay tuned for that. In this episode, we'll speak with Jeff about his exciting, soon-to-be-released Irwin Allen book. And boy, does it sound great. So sit back and enjoy this first of two power-packed interviews with author and soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. Jeff Bonser, welcome. It's great to have you back on Alpha Control, and we really appreciate you coming back for round two.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we talked about a year ago, and we spent the bulk of our time talking about the music from season one of Lost in Space, you of course being the producer with Neil Bulk of that great uh, 50th anniversary soundtrack collection, and we're getting ready to start talking about season two on our show, and I thought, uh, hey, get Jeff back and we'll go over some of the the new music that was scored for that season. But before we dive into that, what I really would like to talk to you about is this fantastic new book project that you teased a year ago that's getting ready to be released, The Fantasy Worlds of Erwin Allen. Am I right? We're about to see that hit the streets in a few weeks? Yes,
1: uh, it's good. Well, it will be out. I think we will have it off the boat from China on July 5th, hmm. is my understanding.
0: Wow. This thing looks absolutely awesome. And you've been generous enough to share some sneak previews of some of the material in there on Facebook and on the creaturefeatures.com site. Can you tell us how, again, you got involved with this project?
1: Well, this is something I like to think I came up with the idea, Um, I think, between me and, and Taylor White, who published the book we came up with the idea of doing kind of an art of of Irwin Allen book. And this was a long time ago. I think it came about because we had met Kevin Burns, who's in charge of the kind of the Irwin Allen estate and -hmm. and all the different Irwin Allen properties. And uh, at the time we met him, he was actually at 20th Century Fox working there. And uh, this was probably around the time of the Lost in Space movie and the oh, wow. uh, uh, Lost in Space Forever documentary that Kevin made to kind of coincide with that movie project. And I remember I spent a day with Kevin uh, on this reproduction of the Jupiter 2's top deck with Bill Moomy and uh, Jonathan Harris and, uh-huh. and Bob May was in his... Robot costume. Uh, Bill Mooney and Jonathan Harris were in there. you know, velour
0: that's costumes. A whole st- that's a whole yeah, story I, in itself. <laughs> it is, yeah. I
1: spent, you know, a whole day there watching them film. You know, I was standing next to Kevin Burns, and I was like, you realize this is like one of the greatest days of my life. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I got to, you know, sit down and talk to Jonathan Harris, uh, for about 20 minutes and it was fantastic. And so we knew that, you know, Kevin had control of the rights to all these different properties. And I had always been a huge, uh, you know, I think Irwin Allen stuff was kind of my original fandom as, as a kid. And I think that's probably true of most people who Are fans of Irwin Allen. You first kind of connect to it, you know, when you're a kid. Lost in Space is probably the first live action TV show that I remember watching as a kid. I had been fascinated by the miniatures and all the art direction for all of Irwin Allen's projects. Taylor and I like kicked around the idea of, you know, some kind of art of Irwin Allen book, and we. It was something where we would mention it to Kevin every time we'd see him over the next, like, 15 years or, or more. Finally, I, I think about four years ago, we actually hammered out the agreement to do it. Okay. And then Kevin gave me access to his archives of all of Irwin Allen's materials. It's basically a storage facility that has every piece of paper and every knickknack, anything that was in Irwin Allen's office, going back to like 1946. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I spent six months going through every box in that space and, uh, you know, it was very organized yeah, by I was, projects. I was going to ask. Uh, yeah so it started off with you know kind of like his early correspondence from when he was an, just an agent then there were boxes for all of his movie projects for like the sea around us and a lot of movies that he did at rko and then into his film productions like the big circus and the movies he did at fox like lost world and boys the bottom of the sea
0: Come with me on a
2: voyage to the bottom of the sea.
1: Through his TV series and and his disaster movies, and then uh, his television projects through the mid eighties, I'd say. Mm So I spent all this time going through that. I was pulling out letters, memos. You know, I was looking for specific pieces of artwork.
2: Unbelievable, inconceivable, fantastic it will seem.
1: One of the things we found was the the original design sketch for the flying sub from *Voice to the Bottom of the Sea*. Oh, cool! And so we, you know, you found all sorts of stuff like that—tons and tons of storyboards and concept art, photographs. Alan kept, you know, every article ever written about him.
3: On
2: our voyage to the bottom of the sea. On our voyage to the bottom of the sea.
1: And to sort of start the project, I went to the Margaret Herrick Library, the Motion Picture Academy Library out here in Beverly Hills. And you can just go there and get clippings or photos on any topic for research. So I just went and got every article that they had about Irwin Allen and just sort of kind of arranged them chronologically and, you know, pulled all the quotes out of those. And that kind of gave me the spine of the book as a chronology. And then I started plugging in, you know, all of the articles and um, interviews, material that Irwin had kept sort of as his own clippings. And then Kevin Burns gave me all the raw interview recordings for his Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen documentary that he did in 1995. Uh-huh. You know, one of the challenges with doing this project when we did it was that the vast majority of the people who worked for Irwin Allen were no longer living.
0: Right, right.
1: Including uh, Irwin himself and, and Sheila Matthews, his wife. So Kevin's uh, interviews were a great way of getting recollections from, you know, people like Red Buttons and Ronnie McDowell and, mm-hmm. and all these great people who had worked with Alan. And there was quite a lot of material that wound up not being used in the documentary. So that there is a certain amount that's in there that, you know, if you watch that documentary will be familiar. And then there's other stuff that is not.
0: Hmm.
2: So
1: I spent, um, I think, about a year writing it, and then we got a great art director, Jason Adam, to design the book, and I spent probably another full year with him. I personally picked, I think, all the artwork that went into the book, something like 2,000 images, and we researched them and wrote captions. Jason came up with a great look for the book. Hmm. The other thing that I wanted to do is some of the people who were still around and that I thought was important to interview were like some of the illustrators and designers that it worked with or when I, I was not able to talk to all of them. Some of them had either passed on or just were out of the Los Angeles area. Like one guy I really wanted to talk to was production designer for Land of the Giants because he also did City Beneath the Sea and he was just completely a wall. Nobody knew where he was and I suspect he was not in good health i'm not even sure if he's still alive i don't think he is but yeah. i did talk to uh bill krieber and he bill oh. actually just passed away in the past few months but i got a great interview with bill my friend uh gene kazicki who i'm doing another book project with works for the visual effects society here and he's a longtime visual effects producer, and he got me some great material for the book, some of his own photos. And he knew Bill Krieber very well and helped set up a, an interview with Bill. And we actually got some you know, stuff from Bill Kreeber that I don't think people are really aware of, that mm. Bill really kind of finalized the design of the sea view for the Voice to the Bottom of the Sea movie. Okay. You know, that that's often credited to Herman Blumenthal, who was the you know art director on the movie, and he's credited with that. And he he came up with the original sort of basic shape of the sea view, I think. But some of the more distinctive parts, like the whole you know manta ray fins mm-hmm. around the nose and everything, and the probably also the, the kind of Cadillac tail fins i think were something that bill Krieber kind of brought to the you know the final execution he had a story actually that the manta ray fins on the nose of the were originally kind of heading straight out around from the body and he said that they had like a big clay sculpture of it and erwin allen was looking at it and he (laughs) (laughs) erwin just grabbed the fins and pushed them down and said i like them better this way oh man and actually bill was very (laughs) bill Krieger designed not only um, the Gemini 12, uh, the original version of the Jupiter 2, for Lost in Space and the Chariot and everything that went into the pilot of Lost in Space, and he designed the time tunnel and the flying sub, and he redesigned the nose of the Seaview mm. you know, for the color episodes, so it would hold the flying sub. But
3: Come aboard the Seaview, the fantastic submarine of the future, exploring the uncharted ocean floor. Join the men of the Seaview as they encounter supernatural beings.
1: But and he also worked on, you know, Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno, uh, Alan's biggest disaster movies, and he also designed Planet of the Apes. Wow. So he was an incredible artist, but he was a you know very strangely modest.
3: And failure is often cheated by Seabiew's fabulous flying sub
1: the other thing that erwin did was that you know the original design of the flying sub the wings are swept down because it was supposed to almost kind of snap up into the nose of the sea view and fit that shape
0: sort of like the way the uh, those manta ray fins kind of Yeah exactly down. Yeah. this fantastic
3: vehicle is geared to maneuver as a submarine or break water and become a supersonic jet plane.
1: So they made a design study model for Irwin, and Irwin, you know, flipped it over and said, "Don't you think it looks better this way?" And you know, Bill says he says, "Whatever you say." Yeah. <laughs> so he never argued with Irwin.
3: Each week. Join us as we stimulate your imagination on an incredible voyage to the bottom of the sea.
1: And uh, so he had some great insight. And there's another guy named Joseph Musso, who was an illustrator who worked with Irwin, starting, I think, on Towering Inferno. Mm-hmm. But he had also worked at Fox, you know, in the 60s when all of Irwin's television series were being made and joe worked with Irwin right. basically up to Irwin's death and he also knew people who worked with Irwin. you know when he was just getting started in hollywood as an agent so he literally had stories that went from you know the very beginning of Irwin's career almost literally to to his deathbed yeah so i spent about six hours at his house uh Talking to him, and uh, he gave me some of his illustrations, and he was a fantastic source for the book. You know, I think he gave more of a personal insight into Allen and uh, his career and his kind of his ups and downs.
0: Yeah, you know, you described this as the germ of the idea it was an art book about Irwin Allen, but it. It sounds to me like it's much more than that, and I can tell from the stuff that you've shared online. It's a very visual book, but it's also full of these uh, interviews and stories and everything. So that really adds something. I mean, I think a lot of these kinds of art books leave you wanting more information. It's great to see the pictures and everything, but the stories behind it are what actually make it all the more fascinating. I think.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it, you know this is a a six hundred and twelve page book. I got the like kind of. Printer samples, you know, the printer samples are basically they give you a giant white blank book, just all blank pages. And that just shows you what the size of the book is. And then they give you like sort of separate printout pages of all the color layouts. But this book is really massive.
0: So Nine and a half almost, pounds did I read? <laughs> yeah, it, it is
1: it is uh, one of the biggest books I've ever seen. And I did really try to tell kind of the story of his life. yeah, I think it's w- what's interesting about it and what was great about working with Kevin is that Kevin, you know, he loves Irwin and is very respectful of and protective of, you know, Alan's kind of legacy. Mm-hmm. But he really let us do a pretty honest book. It's not an expose, but Irwin Allen's career, I think, is interesting because of the ups and downs he had. Irwin Allen was basically, you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg about two years before George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. In the early 70s, when he did Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno, those were the biggest hits, particularly Towering Inferno. You know that was the biggest money maker of all time when it came out. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman
3: race against time as one tiny spark becomes a night of
1: blazing suspense. The towering inferno is out of control. You know that for one thing. That was my first date movie as a teenager. <laughs> And I remember, uh, they don't really do this anymore, but in the 60s and 70s, when a movie was really successful, it would be like, you know, they'd have these signs that say, Held over. Mm -hmm. That meant that it was making so much money that it wasn't going to leave the theater for several weeks longer than they had planned to. And I remember Towering Inferno being held over for something like two months, even in my tiny little town where I watched it. It was a just gigantic mammoth hit. It was the Star Wars of its time. And Alan really sort of introduced or reintroduced the idea of A giant special effects blockbuster right you know there had been other movies you know like reigns of ranchiper and stuff throughout the golden age of hollywood where there would be like a disaster but it usually wasn't the focus of the movie the movie was sort of about something else and then a disaster might happen at the climax to kind of put (laughs) all the drama in perspective But I think that, you know, Irwin was the first guy to really center the movie around the disaster and make the whole length of the movie about the challenge for the characters and surviving that. The scale of special effects and sets and stunts that he came up with had really not been put on film before in 1974 he was kind of wooed away from 20th century fox after making the towering inferno he had made a deal with warner brothers and fox to make the towering inferno because each of them had bought a rights to a book about a giant skyscraper on fire and they were both going to make the movie and compete and irwin instead brokered this deal for them to combine forces which was a great promotional tool mm-hmm. you know to basically make it sound like this movie was so big it took two of the biggest studios in Hollywood to make <laughs> it together Warner Brothers
3: and 20th
1: Century Fox present Irwin Allen's production of
3: The Towering Inferno McQueen, Paul Newman, William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Susan Blakely, Richard Chamberlain, Jennifer Jones, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughn, and Robert Wagner, The Towering Inferno. Those people are going to die up there something's not done. Now, the producer of The Poseidon Adventure brings you more spectacle, more stars, More suspense than you've
1: ever seen in one motion picture, the towering Inferno. You know, another one of the kind of the stories about Irwin was that he was a frustrated director, and he had directed his early movies for Fox, and he had directed all the pilots for his TV series that he produced. And he directed this TV movie, uh, City Beneath the Sea. Early morning
3: hours of New Year's Eve. The SS Poseidon, en route from New York to Athens, was struck by a 90 foot tidal wave. Oh my God. And capsized. Erwin Allen's production of
1: The Poseidon Adventure. And then when he went to make Poseidon Adventure, Fox, you know, he had worked for a decade for Fox and made them tons of money, but they didn't trust him to actually direct the Poseidon Adventure. That's the way out. Gene Hackman, Ernest
3: Borgnine, Red Buttons, Carol Lindley, Roddy McDowell, Stella Stevens, Shelley Winters, Jack Albertson, Pamela Sue Martin, Arthur O'Connell, Eric Shea, and Leslie Nielsen. Who will survive? The combined talents of 15 Academy Award winners bring you The Poseidon Adventure,
1: a Ronald Neame film coming from 20th Century Fox. So they got this British director, Ronald Neame, to make that. And it was really Irwin's project. And if you look at the documentary kind of promotional films made about the making of that if you watch it it looks like Irwin is directing the movie that it shows him right. directing, uh, you know the scenes where the water's bursting in on the big turned over room this is the studio this is the man
3: who gave you the biggest grossing picture in the world during the past year
2: good morning
3: Margaret Cola production meeting, full staff please.
2: Yes, sir, right away.
3: Thank you. On this lot, in this man's mind, was born the dream that resulted in the Poseidon adventure. Part of that dream came to reality on this very stage.
1: And he was doing this as far back as, like, the animal world. Uh, if you look at the, like, images of him on the set of the animal world, which is this little documentary where he got Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien, these stop-motion animators, who were famous in their in their own right. But if you look at the photos of the making of that, it all looks like Irwin is doing all the stop-motion himself.
3: All of that man's dream came true resulting in a blockbuster that played musical chimes on cash registers in box offices around the world and made the Poseidon adventure one of the largest grossing pictures of all time and still going strong.
2: I need, I need a couple of dead people, maybe somebody on the light here, Paul, right there. I know that if he says such and such a thing is going to be done and we'll be ready for you to shoot, I know it's going to be ready. I don't want anybody to run any risk of being hurt. we're going to do,
3: yeah. Of primary concern to producer Allen is the potential
1: danger to the cast
3: and crew.
2: Okay, so that no one is in
1: danger. And so he was a genius at promoting his yes. own brand. Uh, If you look at, you know, Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure, both of those were made by other directors, but you would never know it from looking at the making of footage because it's all about Erwin Allen. So he, you know, he was at this pinnacle of his career and then he was kind of wooed over to Warner Brothers. You know, they said they were going to name a building after him.
0: Oh man, that could have, uh, (laughs) that kind of vanity was probably just what he needed,
1: huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. they gave him this incredible production deal. He had all of these huge projects in development.
3: Now other dreams are being born. Dreams that will bring your box office five new gigantic blockbusters in orderly fashion over the next two and a half years. $24 million in new picks for Irwin Allen. This is the house of movie magic. Here, the only entertainments born are blockbusters and only blockbusters are entertained. And this is Hollywood's master magician Irwin Allen. Hello, after that kind of an introduction nothing less than magic and miracles will do so for openers here I am up on the screen but believe it or not I'm also down there in the audience with you or at least I thought
1: I was somewhere. Ah, Irwin. Erwin Allen, up on your feet. Take a bow. And he wound up, his first kind of directing job after The Towering Inferno was actually on this movie called Viva Knievel about Evil Knievel.
3: The first name in excitement, the one and only Evil Knievel.
1: Stars in his first motion picture, Viva Knievel it was just something that Irwin was producing and the director Gordon Douglas got sick on the first day of filming and Irwin took over and he made this kind of ridiculous movie and he never took credit for it it's still credited for Gordon Douglas and a, a lot of people i don't think even know that Irwin directed it Viva! Viva! And then his next big project, his big disaster film, which he finally was going to be able to direct for Warner Brothers, was The Swarm. It is a documented scientific fact that a gigantic swarm of killer bees
3: is now moving toward the United States.
1: And that. You know, turned out to be one of the biggest flops ever released, and one of the most, you know, viciously reviewed movies that was ever released. Right. Only the resources of modern technology may be able to stop it in time. Uh, so it's like this kind of incredible rise and fall and he still has a contract with warner brothers he did two more disaster movies and i remember you know the swarm was a huge gigantic release in terms of his promotion and the number of movie screens it was on now erwin Allen brings you the ultimate suspense adventure Starring Michael
3: Caine, Catherine Ross, Richard Widmark, Richard Chamberlain.
1: And there were actually lawsuits over it because, uh, you know, they were sued for, like, blind bidding. That Basically, they kind of forced theaters to take this movie without ever seeing a frame of it. Richard Chamberlain, Olivia de Havilland, Ben Johnson, Lee Grant, Jose Ferrer, Patty Duke-Aston, Slim Pickens, Bradford Dillman, Fred McMurray,
3: and Henry Fonda. In a spectacular adventure of human ingenuity and courage.
1: Warner Brothers really knew before the movie came out that it, it was not going to be a good movie. And yeah. that it did not have a lot of box office potential. So they put it in as many theaters as they could, and they really, really promoted it because they knew they were going to make all their money in the first weekend, and then they, it was not going to have any legs.
3: Can they stop it in time? The Swarm, rated PG. It starts Friday at theaters and drive-ins everywhere.
1: So after that, you know, Irwin still had a contract. He did these two other movies. But I, I remember, you know, and I was a huge fan of his in the late 70s and looking to see what he might be working on. Uh, but he, you know, he did the sequel to The Poseidon Adventure and this movie called uh, When Time Ran Out about a volcano in uh, Hawaii. I think if you were Looking at movies to go to back then, you would have never known that either of those films were released. I remember seeing a review for Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and I was shocked because I had no idea that there was a sequel to the Poseidon Adventure uh, being made, and both of those movies kind of were just in and out of theaters. And and When Time Ran Out was actually the most expensive movie that Alan ever made because of the costs of shooting on location. There's not going to be any evacuation.
3: Another non-believer. Won't they ever learn? Only this guy's problem is a small matter of a
1: very active volcano. And it's so much so that they, I think they really ran out of money
0: yeah.
1: for special effects. And if you watch the kind of climax of that movie, it's kind of pitiful. The effects that they came up with to kind of destroy this hotel with flying magma but it, it, it's a movie that just completely disappeared you would just think it was like a tv movie the way it finally sort of showed up on television and yeah. i think it might have even run on like the cbs late movie or something you know not even in prime time yeah
3: paul newman jacqueline visit william holden james franciscus alex karras pat marita Excuse me, but don't we have any other explosions? Thank you. Burgess Meredith
0: and Hill Street's Veronica Hamill. They were all having a good time when time ran out. When time ran out, it seems like it's sort of uh, ironically titled. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that there's a story that this didn't wind up in the book, but there was a story that I think Barbara Carrera told because she was one of the stars. And she said that, you know, the actors were all sitting around talking and the the actors had a great time. They were all on vacation in Hawaii, you know, while they were filming. But Erwin Allen was miserable because he was losing money. But she said that William Holden, they were, you know, trying to come up with names like different titles for the movie and. He said it should be called When Our Careers Ran Out or something.
0: <laughs> wow. It's great to be speaking again with author and Lost in Space soundtrack producer Jeff Bond. His knowledge about the music and art of classic sci-fi TV and films is truly impressive. He's got more to share about Irwin Allen, Lost in Space, and much more. So sit tight for the second half of our conversation with Jeff Bond. It's interesting. You, you hit on something that's so true. I mean, the ups and downs are what really kind of make Erwin Allen such an interesting character. And he was larger than life, and he seemed to reinvent himself and wasn't bashful about self promotion, like you say. But he always seemed to be thinking of the next thing. And I just wonder how he was able to transition from the stuff he was doing on TV to this whole becoming the master of disaster. Was there anything that telegraphed that in some of his? Well, I work? do
1: think. Yeah, I do think that uh, if you look at Land of the Giants, that show in a way he was inventing the disaster movie formula
2: the year 1983 a spaceship out of control what are you doing?
1: his previous shows had all been about you know scientists or military men
2: headed for oblivion an oblivion in a nightmare environment
1: And that's what his earlier science fiction movies were all about adventures And and I think with Land of the Giants, the idea, even though they were very glamorized, it was a little bit more ordinary people and, and a kind of mixed up, diverse group of characters
2: thrown together. Seven people must learn to survive, to live a miniature existence in a land of fantastic proportions.
1: If you can create a distraction, I think I can climb up there. And then you have all the actors having to perform all these stunts and be climbing around and through all these different environments.
2: I'm going to get out of here!
1: From now on, that's just the way it's going to be in this world.
2: Land of the Giants, in color.
1: And that's really what uh, the Poseidon adventure was. Mm-hmm. Subsea earthquake, 7.8 on a Richter scale.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. It is exactly 50 seconds to midnight. Look out. Can you make out anything? Nothing, sir. We have a radar target in the port bow. Keep a sharp watch. Ten seconds. Nine.
1: Eight.
3: On the port bow. I don't know. I, I never saw anything like it. An enormous wall of water coming towards us. Seven.
1: Six. One. And the Poseidon Adventure in particular, I think, was the pinnacle of that format because the, there was a whole blue collar aspect to it with the Ernest Borgnine character and uh, Jack Albertson and Shelley Winters three, three, two, one. Oh my god And the fact that you had these kind of ordinary people that you could see as some maybe your neighbors getting involved in this gigantic, incredible adventure in this bizarre environment, I think is what really made Poseidon Adventure you know, work and be this gigantic hit. And is what made it the best out of those two pictures. Towering Inferno is more spectacular. It is really, really good.
2: Do you think it might be a better idea if we went up what the hell are you talking
3: about i mean it seems to me that any rescue attempt would have to come through the hull the hull you mean
2: through the bottom my god that's right we're floating upside down we've got to climb up
1: i would say those are the two best disaster movies ever made but a adventure Is just a little bit better than Towering Inferno in terms of the characters because of of the mix of, you know, kind of blue collar and, and, you know, sort of more people at a higher level.
3: We're cut off from the rest of the world. They can't get to us. Maybe we can get to them. You've said enough. Now get out of the way. Pray for us, but don't do this. Climbing to another deck will kill you all. And sitting on our butts is not going to help us either
1: there was a great amount of conflict you know you have this kind of class conflict between ernest borgnine and gene hackman right
2: i told you i was gonna get everybody out of here and god
3: damn it i'm gonna do it now look preacher i've had just about enough out of you who do you think you are god himself
1: And that's what really made that work. There were similar things kind of going on in Land of the Giants. The head pilot and the engineer, those two characters were always clashing. There was always a lot of conflict. Right. Damn it, man, the Poseidon is too fine a lady to be rushed to the junkyard on her last voyage. So, you know, he did that and, you know, City Beneath the Sea... was kind of his last big attempt to do a huge science fiction spectacle. And that's still my favorite project of his. And it's actually one of the main reasons I wanted to do the book, because I wanted to find out what (laughs) materials there were on City, but into Sea. found a lot of great color photos behind the scenes uh, making of that. A lot of fantastic storyboards. So I, I think that he, you know, towards the end of the 60s and, you know, especially with Land of the Giants, he was starting to figure out what this whole kind of disaster movie concept was going to be. And so so Land of the Giants, I think, was an important uh, step in that direction.
0: Amazing. Well, this book is eagerly anticipated by my listeners and, you know, a lot of other people, I'm sure, 600 pages. I mean, it's so comprehensive. Was it a challenge, even with that much, <laughs> that much bandwidth to work with? Was it a challenge calling out things?
1: Uh, I, I would, it's funny because, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he's regretting it now, but my, you know, Taylor, my publisher was very generous and, uh, you know, I, I didn't really know what the length I was going to be working at, but even just with the basic spine of it, I knew it was pretty long, you know, even without all the artwork. Hmm. There's very little that we left out. Uh, you know, we didn't include all the artwork. I probably would have happily included every page of storyboards <laughs> and uh, behind the scenes and production design. But I think we got almost everything that I really wanted. That's and great. Th- that's what I mean. The, the, no expense was spared in producing the book. $80 sort of seems expensive. It's really like a $200 book. I compare it to like the, um, there's this uh, Tashin book called The Kubrick Archives. That's the only book I've ever seen that's larger than this Irwin Allen book. And I think they're about the same thickness. The Kubrick book's just a little bit wider.
0: That's uh, a great book. I have actually had that Tashin
1: yeah, book yeah. myself. So it, if it's, it's in the, that
0: league, this is going to be awesome. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, like I said, it's not as quite, it's not a widescreen format. That's something we actually toyed with because a lot of the images, um, especially from the early Fox films, the concept art for that was all done by, um, they called him Zubi. was a very famous illustrator, and he did a lot of these in this super widescreen format. And uh, we have a lot of, there's paintings of, you know, what the sea view was going to be. And, uh, the, you know, I think like, Herman Blumenthal's original design of the Seaview was—it was, it was re- taken right out of the description. You know, they always called it a, like a glass-nosed submarine. Right. So the, his original design is literally that. It's like the whole front of the sub. So there's no like manta ray fins or anything. Yeah, it just looks like a nuclear submarine, except the whole front of it is just out uh, this glass uh, <laughs> cabinet.
0: Yeah, I think with, you shared uh, that. Uh, yeah, image. no no
1: frames or anything. You can yeah. just see like a deck or something. And it would have been absolutely impossible. They could have done it, but it would have been done with, you know, pretty primitive blue screen, you know, with people mm-hmm. just sitting in front of some. What they often did with, you know, blue screen back then, and this is something that they figured out on Star Wars not to do, was to include, you know, like a reflective glass window because then you would get these weird artifacts where there was blue reflecting off the glass Mm -hmm. and so you get these big weird blue spill areas Um, you can see that in like fantastic voyage which was done at fox when the scenes where you see the pilot under the dome right you know you, you see the the these kind of weird areas at the edges of that dome uh, so when, you know when they did Star Wars, like the miniatures, they just didn't put any glass. For one thing, they made sure they didn't have any curved domes or, right. or you know curved glass, and so they just had these angular windows. And then they just left all the clear g- glass material off of them because the the ships were moving around so fast that you could never catch the fact that you weren't seeing any reflections on them. So the C U would have been a nightmare. It, it, you know, would have been just completely unconvincing if they would have done it that way. And they eventually figured out that a glass nose just meant a lot of windows in in
0: the front of the nose. Well, let me ask you this, Jeff. You kind of touched on it before talking about Bill Krieger and I think his name was uh, Joe... Joe Musso. Musso. After spending so much of this time with all these production materials, were you able to discern an Irwin Allen style in terms of a visual (laughs) style?
1: uh, It's funny because... Bill Creaver was this very kind of reserved guy and he had a great sense of humor. But if you would ask him a question like that, he would just say, well, Irwin liked orange. <laughs> uh, it, I think uh, you have to give Alan credit. And, and he was, uh, the, you know, the one of the big reasons. And I wound up talking to several other production illustrators for the book. There was a guy named uh, Roy Alexander and George Jensen, I think. Um, one of them had worked for Disney Jensen had worked on like close encounters. He worked on a bunch of the, you know, major seventies science fiction projects. Mm-hmm. So Alan knew that he hired some of the best illustrators who worked in Hollywood and he was very respectful of them. I mean, I would, not to the extent of paying them a lot of money because I think Alan was kind of famous for not <laughs> paying yeah. everybody uh, great salaries. Uh, But he knew that those artists were pivotal to create a great look. And so he was very interested in, you know, in the visual look of all of his productions. And that goes back to even, you know, we were looking at the this movie uh, Dangerous Mission. a 3D kind of suspense film that he made with Victor Mature, and it's set in um, Glacier National Park.
3: Last night we were dancing. Why did you stop when they started to play one more for the road?
2: Well, I told you it was too slow to dance
3: to. I know that's what you told me, but I have a hunch that it reminded you of something.
1: <laughs> and there's this early scene uh, in that this and this is in the, like mid 50s there's an early scene with an avalanche with people trapped inside a cabin and then Victor mature has to go out and climb up a like a power pole and pull wires out because sparks are flying everywhere mm. All of the
3: rangers are looking for
1: me. All of the
3: roads are closed. Red flares are burning all over the place. Everybody in Glacier Park is looking for Paul Adams.
1: We found all of the design sketches and production sketches for those sequences. And it shows how Alan, even back then, he knew that he had to plan those sequences because they all involve stunts and a lot of physical special effects that had to be done on set with actors and you had to plan them so nobody got hurt you know it just occurred to me that i'm in love with the clay pigeon a
3: hunted woman her relentless pursuer and the man who loved her enough to risk his life atop the most treacherous glacier in the world on the lonely gale-lashed peak they meet one with animal cunning, the other only his reckless daring. Here, amid the dazzling grandeur of one of the world's wonder spots, Glacier National Park, is enacted an action story that, for sheer drama, stands
1: absolutely alone. Then the finale is like Vincent Price plays the villain, and there's like a shootout on top of a glacier, and people like falling through, you know, crevasses in a in the glacier. Ah! And that film also had a sequence of, uh, you know, he had everything in this, you know, he had an avalanche and like a forest fire. And he had, that was all stock footage that he had obtained. the other kind of funny thing about Alan is that so much of his career was built around him just uh, obtaining or using footage from other people's movies and movies.
0: He was into recycling before yeah, it became yeah. uh,
1: popular. His early memos for a Dangerous Mission, you know, he's pointing out how they were going to be able to save all this money because they had all this footage of this fire and they were going to ha- be able to add this whole sequence to this movie without, you know, going out and filming a real fire. <laughs> ¶¶ And then, of course, you know he did these two movies, these documentaries.
2: The oceans of the world are responsible for many things, some good, some bad. And very possibly the most interesting of all is the proof that the sea dominates the world's climate. The sea around us, which won him
1: an Oscar, and which was really just him collecting a bunch of footage from other
2: people's <laughs> yeah. films that, and putting them together. There is a theory so startling and so scientifically documented that all the world might well take notice. The theory is that here in the Arctic Waste, buried beneath a billion tons of frozen sea, hides an astonishing secret. If all the ice in all the world continues to melt, the levels of all the seas will rise 100 feet or more, the great coastal cities of all the world might well be drowned.
0: Amazing.
1: You know, that, he won an Oscar for that because no one had made a feature-length documentary about the ocean before he was the first one to do it. It has been
2: established beyond all reasonable doubt that the great Arctic change of climate started somewhere about 1900 and has spread so rapidly that small glaciers have already disappeared and the big ones are melting at a startling rate. Man, with all the science of the past at his command, now knows that the melting of all these glaciers, coupled with the drastic upheaval of the land masses of the globe, might one day drown more than half the Earth.
1: What is the fate of the world? Is this the end? That's what really launched his career because he was just sort of working as a minor producer at RKO until he could say, now I'm an Oscar winning filmmaker. And after that, then he was (laughs) doing his own movies. And he did, you know, another documentary, Animal World, which is where he used, you know, Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien to create these dinosaur sequences. And then later, he did this movie, uh, The Story of Mankind, where you know mankind is put on trial for developing, you know, some atomic weapon, and uh, it's really like a Cecil B. DeMille film, kind of showing all these different famous stories from history, but using all of Warner Brothers' footage from all of their old period films. And then later he did the Time Tunnel.
3: When you enter the Time Tunnel, almost anything can happen.
1: Where he could use Fox's library to show different periods in history. So he was kind of a genius to give production value where they couldn't afford it.
3: The Time Tunnel, in color on ABC.
1: so that's why his TV shows were so successful at Fox. No one had seen these kinds of sets and special effects, miniatures and things done on a television budget. Everything prior to that had just been kind of black and white, very simple things like The Twilight Zone with very minimal special effects. And he brought a lot of scope to those shows.
0: Yeah, my goodness. I I agree with you. You got to give him credit. I mean, we can tease him for some of that stuff today, you know, the the recycling and everything, but he was thinking of things before anybody else said, I think this is great. And Erwin Allen definitely deserves the kind of treatment you're giving him in the book. Thank you for sharing the chapter list online as well. So it looks like the book is basically organized around his projects. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I said at the, you know, I wrote an introduction to this book and, you know, it's hard to do a book about anyone's life and I you know I would not call this a biography of Irwin Allen but he was so consumed by his career and his projects that you know he that's one of the things he was known for was not really having much of a personal life and uh you know he I, he didn't have children uh, you know he was married but you know his wife was involved in his projects as a actress and you know he was famous for just spending you know all his time when he was even when he was home he was reading scripts so I, you know I thought it was very appropriate to just organize the book around it, you know his projects, because that those really were his life. The last project that he did was this Alice in Wonderland musical, which is really pretty goofy, but it's kind of a, it's almost like an extended like Carol Burnett show. Monday, it's a magical
2: musical wonderland with one of the greatest casts ever assembled.
1: With, you know, all these celebrities in uh, prosthetic makeup playing different Wacky characters and, you know, songs. Sammy Davis Jr., Jack Wharton, Sally Struthers, Donna Mills, Ann Jillian, Steve Lawrence, Edie Gourmet, Jonathan Winters, Telly Savalas, and many more in Irwin Allen's all-new musical Alice in Wonderland, Monday. And it was somewhat of a success, and it's... a like kind of a touching story because uh you know he had a reputation as just being kind of a taskmaster and no fun and and I have a chapter called the misunderstood hero that's the way one of these critics described this movie dangerous mission because it has uh, Victor Mature plays a guy who you think is just a jerk and you realize that he's uh, intentionally being a jerk to kind of throw people off the mm-hmm. scent. He's actually trying to help this woman. It was criticized, you know, part of a critic's review. This was kind of a standard soap opera plot, you know, and a lot, for a lot of like weepers, mm-hmm. uh, where you'd have a woman who's, you know, alienating everyone, but she's really sacrificing, you know, everything. And so I thought that was kind of a key to Irwin's character in a way that he really, put a lot of people off and alienated a lot of people because he was so focused on what he was doing but he did have you know i think he really loved kids even though that he never had them uh he was always giving toys and things to people when they would bring their kids onto the lot where he was working he had a whole room full of toys you know merchandise that he would have made from his shows he was described as kind of being a big kid at heart but he was also this very intimidating producer and there's a, the guy who had directed the um alice in wonderland production was uh harry harris who had done you know directed many episodes of voice of the bottom of the sea and lost in space and had worked right. with Alan for years and had never sort of really gotten along with them and uh, he, he didn't want to do Alice in Wonderland and told his agent that, that he didn't want to do it until told, he told him to, like, make some kind of impossible demand, you know, so I can get out of this. So he told him that, uh, you know, he wanted a car. And so <laughs> a- Alan called him up and yelled, uh, you know, yelled at him. It was like, I'm not a youth car salesman, but he wound up giving it to him because he really wanted him to do this project. You know, after it was all over, they'd finished it. And Harry Harris said he got a call from Erwin Allen that Alan wanted to see him in his office. And he's like, oh no. He's like, what, you know, what's he going to yell at me mm-hmm. for now? So he went in there and he they closed the door and he said, like, Alan, Basically burst into tears and hugged him because he was so happy that they had finished this movie. And it's like almost kind of the only time in the book that you see like a vulnerable Erwin Allen. And, And it's at the very end of his career. And he had had planned to do another similar production to Alice in Wonderland, which was going to be a big adaptation of Pinocchio. And we have a lot of artwork for that. You know, that was going to be another big production that he was gearing up for. But he had uh, heart disease
0: and
1: heart surgery and wound up dying before he was able to get started on that.
0: Well, I've taken my share of teasing jabs at Irwin for some of his little foibles, but I'll have to say, I mean, he he gave a lot of work to a lot of people and no man that made that many millions of kids <laughs> happy with his TV shows could be all bad. I'll have to say that about yeah, him. Yeah, and he like- was
1: very very loyal. You know, he kept the same people with him, you know, and that can be a criticism or a praise because it maybe in some ways prevented him from branching out in terms of lo- what a lot of his productions were. But he was very loyal to the people that work with them and he kept them employed mm-hmm. for decades, which is, you know, you could never do now.
0: Yeah. Well, we just interviewed uh, Sandy Gempel, who uh, was in Lost in Space, Bill Mooney's stunt double. And of course, she was uh, in Star Trek, too, at a couple of iconic roles. And that was one thing she shared with us is that he was very loyal to the people that worked with him. So that's great, man. Jeff I was already looking forward to this book but now I can hardly wait so show for us a little bit it's available for pre-order and uh... yeah
1: it is only available through creaturefeatures.com it's 7999 and I'm sure it's probably a hundred dollars with shipping and
0: but you got a special autographed version yeah reviewed.
1: yeah Bill Moomy and I are going to autograph a
0: number of them and he um, wrote the forward, I guess. Yeah.
1: And he wrote a great forward, too. I've talked to him years ago. I think it was about Lost in Space Forever. And uh, I like him. But, you know, when you hire somebody to write a forward to a book, you, you know, it's kind of a gig and you never really know what you're going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we obviously did that for kind of branding purposes. Bill Mooney is really kind of the last actor. He and his fellow cast members from Lost in Space are some of the only people kind of left alive that are familiar to fans. So he was the natural one to have do that. And, he's, you know, I think he has done that for other, you know, Ellen book projects. But I was really impressed with what he did. He could have easily written like a paragraph and left it at that. But he wrote, I think, a really interesting, you know, very honest, but very affectionate remembrance of Irwin Allen. And uh, I'm really happy to have it in the book. I think it's one of the best parts of the book. Uh, it's. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, uh, to say that I was surprised by it, I mean, sounds like negative. Uh, I just didn't quite know what to expect.
0: No, no um, that's awesome. And
1: uh. and uh, I, I really, I think we're really indebted to him for that. That was obviously done after the book had been put together for a while, but it really added a lot to the book. Uh, and I'm really excited that we
0: have that in it. That's great. We can't wait. Well, I'm going to link on the show notes to both the Facebook page and the creaturefeatures.com site. So people get out there, pre-order this book, this New York City <laughs> phone book size book about Irwin Allen. It is going to be awesome and just can't wait.
1: And we're, we'll be doing some uh, more promotion on the Facebook page where we're going to start putting up some photos and things because, uh, uh, yeah, we want to keep promoting it. That's great. It's hard to get across just how immense and how much material is in this book. Even to me, it's kind of staggering. So, I, yeah, I think once people actually see what this is, they'll be really eager to have it.
0: Well, that's awesome. I can't wait. I'm really delighted we had a chance to speak again with author and producer Jeff Bond check out the soundtracks he's helped produce and his books, especially this new one on the fantasy worlds of Erwin Allen. Look out for that future episode where Jeff and I will talk about the season two music of Lost in Space. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control where Kurt and I will continue reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.